information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hi, this is Pierce Boyne, the digital media editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, or JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a series where Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In this exciting episode, the vestibular SIG is interviewing Drs. Michael Schubert and Bela Buki. They will be discussing their article set to appear in the April 2022 issue of JNPT titled, Prevalence of and Theoretical Explanation for Type 2 Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo. In addition to being an author on this manuscript, I'd like to highlight that Dr. Michael Schubert is also a JNPT associate editor. Of course, he was not involved in the review of this manuscript. I'm really excited to hear you all speak and welcome to this podcast. Thank, Thank you, Pierce. Pierce and I'm your host, Pooja Agarwal. I'm a physical therapist for about 28 years now, uh, working as a director of rehab services at Phelps Hospital, Northwell Health in New York. And we have on our podcast on type 2 BPPV today, two very extinguished guests, Dr. Michael Schubert and Dr. Bella Buki. Dr. Schubert is a professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, with a joint appointment in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He completed his PhD at the University of Miami and a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. His clinical focus is treating gaze and gait instability in people with loss of vestibular sensation. His current research investigates differences in motor learning in the vestibulo-ocular reflex using different types of error signals. Welcome, Dr. Schubert. Thank you, Pooja. Dr. Belabuki is an MD and a PhD working as an ENT specialist at the Department of Otolaryngology, University Hospital Krems, Carl Landsteiner, University of Health Sciences in Austria. He graduated and received his PhD at the Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary, having developed a method for the non-invasive monitoring of intracranial pressure changes using otoacoustic emissions. His current research and interests include exploring the usefulness of the three-dimensional anatomical reconstructions of the labyrinth's anatomy in vestibular research. Welcome, Dr. Buki. Hi, Pooja. Thanks. So obviously, we're very excited about this topic, and we're going to dive into the very first question. Um, what is type 2 BPPV? Well, back in 2008 or 2010, we noticed that apart from the acute and typical attacks of benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, there also exists a more chronic variant with less intense symptoms. These patients were not very ill and they were ready to wait for the appointment weeks or months till ultimately they were ill enough to go and see the doctor. Their symptoms were uniform, slight vertigo or dizziness when bending forward, looking up and turning over in bed. These symptoms suggested rogue otoconia moving around in a vestibular organ, such as in classical BPPV. And the radiological workup also excluded central vestibular diagnosis. However, the classical signs according to the accepted criteria of BPPV were missing. This would have been 
nystagmus seen in Dick's whole pike positioning or in lateral supine position elicited by otoconia moving in the endolymph of the semicircular canals. There was no positional nystagmus. So that time and indeed neither today, we were not allowed to classify these cases as peripheral BPPV. The problem, however, is that these cases are frequent and we note a certain uniformity. Although there was no nystagmus, there was always a more or less severe vertigo and even trunk sway, sometimes even retropulsion during sitting up from the right or left Dixhole Pike position, but not from the other side. The patients described sometimes that they had the feeling of stumbling forward during sitting up from the head hanging position, but only from one side, not from the other. So this asymmetry was reproducible. So the question was, what is this if, if not BPPV caused by dislocated otoconia? The first step, step to find out, try to find out what is going on was when we back in 2011, did a study to document the unilateral trunk sway and sitting up vertigo by a sitting posturography to do, uh, which we developed at time. Ultimately, we defined type two BPPV by complaints suggesting BPPV, short episode of vertigo when bending forward, lying down, sitting up or turning over in bed. No nystagmus during either Dick's whole pike positioning or supine roll to the left and right. And a short episode of vertigo during and immediately after sitting up from the Dick's whole pike position from one side, but not from the other. Of course, a central cause should be excluded radiologically. Thank you, Dr. Buki. That's very useful information. So physiologically, I guess when we think BPPV, traditionally we're thinking nystagmus. So what sort of um, symptoms would the, patient would the patient express besides feeling dizzy? <clears throat> uh, the, when patients uh, are coming to the uh, outpatient department, we see that this is a defined, well-defined homogenic group. And uh, one starts to think about possible causes and mechanisms. And the patients are uh, describing uh, these problems always the same way. Um, dizziness uh, coming to the uh, head up, um, after sitting up in, in the morning. So uh, we notice that the, in the, at the literature, others, also see these patients, other authors with the same frequency. In our material, it is 30, 40% of all BPV patients, but um, other authors, authors ignored these patients and did not include them into the BPV group. Others suggest that these kinds of subjective BPV symptoms may be caused by anxiety or phobia. But we thought that the asymmetry and this high frequency of the cases did not make this probable. So we studied the anatomy and it became clear for us that in classical BPV, the patients have to lie in supine position when otoconia fall into the, off the utricle and macula and into the uh, uh, long, uh, long arm of the vertical semicircular canals. Uh, but in our patients, they are um, sitting when they are um, 
developing the symptoms or the symptoms come in the night. And Buckingham and colleagues uh, and OAS has, had suggested before that autoconia may fall out of the vestibulum directly into the short term of the posterior canal, even onto the cupola. So we think today that this is me the mechanism of type 2 BPPV, other than in classical BPPV, in which the autoconia falls into the long arm of the semicircular canal. So this would be the difference. Yeah, and can I can okay. I do that? Sorry, Pooja. <clears throat> that I mean, they they I think those those clinicians, particularly in the rehab world, but but also clinicians that have a lot of experience treating positional vertigo, have always sort of followed this general principle that you tr that it's worth treating a symptom even if you don't have the sign for positional vertigo. So it you know, and we and we teach that still that there's no harm in doing that, and obviously you have to do your exam, you got to clear the cervical spine, you got to do your central, you know, ocular motor exam to differentiate. But, but in those, those patients that present with any type of BPV, type one or type two, they, they present similarly clinically. They report vertigo, they position change, you know, and they, they say, I, I get dizzy. They just don't have the nystagmus. And, and, um, and clinically, Again, those who are comfortable and have seen a lot of these patients will, will generally treat them, usually with a repositioning maneuver for the posterior canal, assuming it's in the, the long arm, as Bella said. So in that case, they would do a modified Epley or some modified, maybe a Samant maneuver. Um, and, and many times those clinicians will say, yeah, they got better. So I think there, there, that's why this is a really important topic. It, it, as, as Bella said, there is a, in the literature, a, a relatively high frequency of, of uh, reports that, you know, they didn't have classic BPV, but they had vertigo. We just ruled them out. We just didn't include them in the study. And you can find that. And we've cited that literature in, in, uh, in this paper. Right, so now that kind of takes us to the um, next question. If it's specific to just posterior canal, which is the most commonly found BBPV when we talk about traditional BBPV. Well, the question is <clears throat> what we think, uh, which canal is involved. Um, it's our hypothesis that type two BBPV may occur more frequently in the posterior canal. In classical BPPV, the long arm of the canals or the cupola of the horizontal canal may become uh, gravity sensitive, thereby also nystagmus is produced during positional maneuvers. In type 2, there is no nystagmus, and we think that this is easiest to be explained by the involvement of the short arm of the posterior canal or the posterior cupola as a lithiasis of cupula lithiasis by attached autoconia, which as we mentioned, may go without nystagmus or even evoke a slight persistent positional downbeat nystagmus, which we um, show in the paper. However, we are not sure uh, if, if these theories concerning the exact mechanism can ever be definitely verified. Um, I mean, uh, if you look at the Epley maneuver, never, has anybody seen a, a, an autoconium uh, during this maneuver? So we think of these things only. So um, 
the positional downbeat nystagmus, which we see after repeat testing, after the successful Epley maneuver, gives a, a good idea, we think, about what happens to the autoconia when they fall out of the vestibulum into the short term and attach themselves to the posterior cupola. And more important that colleagues think of chronic BPPV, even if nystagmus is missing, as Michael had said, when the symptoms are typical and try to treat it as we seen, uh, as we saw uh, with repetitive sitting ups, because we found that this was very effective. Yeah, the in theory, it should it's it should be possible that it could exist in in any of the semicircular canals, but the 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 short arm that is the 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 utricular side of the posterior canal it's sort of like a pocket. If you think about a, a billiard pocket, you know when you when you play pool, the pocket it, and it kind of hangs below the utricular shelf. In, in this little pocket. And so it, it, you know, Bella uses this term of garbage can, sort of, that, that the, the short arm of the posterior canal is sort of this bin trash can that's collecting the debris as it naturally sloughs off, or, or maybe there's something pathology, you know, that we don't yet understand for that, that involves the gelatinous matrix and it's not the protein you know, um, it, is, it's not as sticky as it should be, and therefore the otoconian aren't adherent well, you know, some, something. And they just kind of, and gravity pulls them into this pocket, this billiard pocket that sort of is the lowest point, at least in the head upright position uh, of, the, of the labyrinth. And they kind of fall in there. And, um, and, and as, as Bella said, we, the, there's a video, supplemental video in the paper that shows a beautiful example of a persistent downbeat nystagmus with torsion uh, that we think explains it. I think we'll talk a little bit more that, about that mechanism uh, uh, later, but that, that is pretty good evidence that sometimes after a repositioning maneuver, the material falls into the short arm. It does not stay in the utricle. So that's an example where a clinician did a maneuver and it went somewhere we didn't want it to go. In this case, the short arm didn't stay put in the utricle, removed from the long arm originally in that, in that example. So if we're saying there's no nystagmus, uh, would it be safe to assume there's no cupular deflection and that's why there's no nystagmus? In which case, can we also assume that there is no afferent stimulation, which kind of leads into the sub-question of why are they then dizzy? Well, I, it's a good question, and I'm not sure we can answer it, you know, directly with our evidence. So, but we do know there's evidence that single single uh, glass beads that are made the size of an otoconia, the, the studies of, of Rick Rabbit in Utah, a single otoconia floating through the lumen of a toadfish is enough to generate a very robust afferent uh, response, um, which, which would generate an astagmus. So we don't, and that's some of the theory behind uh, silent BPVV is in the literature or type two. We use type two as, as uh, we think that's a better uh, term, but that, it, that 
Um, the, the otoconia is displaced. I mean, it is out of place, but it is located in such a way in the short arm of the, of the, of the posterior canal that it doesn't lead to cupular deflection uh, and therefore generation of the nystagmus. Um, now, in the example we just mentioned about the video exam, uh, it, it, it did create some nystagmus because we believe it was attached probably to, the, probably to the superior aspect of the cupula. And when the superior aspect of the cupula has material attached to it, and, and you put a person in the Dix Hall pike position, if, if it's attached to the superior aspect and in the short arm, it's going to inhibit the posterior semicircular canal. It's going to cause a downbeat and a roll in the opposite direction uh, of the excitatory phase. And that's what the video shows beautifully. Um, so there, there is evidence, um, at least when we relocate the material and it's in a place that the cubula can be deflected, we can cause nystagmus. But Pooja, you're right. Um, we, we think that the, the cupula is, is not being deflected enough to generate the nystagmus. Uh, and yet that causes a symptom, right? It's still causing right, vertigo. Right. And, as, and as Bella mentioned earlier, it causes some truncal, some, some ipsilesional truncal ataxia when they sit up from the provocative or the ipsilesional Dix-Hallpike position. So it does, it does create a symptom and what looks like a, you know, uh, an impairment some truncal instability, and he's published that. So when we talk about the atypical BPPV, we were also talking about inhibition of the canal, and when we do a right Dix-Hall bike, we might see the inhibitory response of uh, torsion to the opposite side and a downbeat, and this is presenting similar, like you mentioned, there's otoconia on the superior aspect on the short arm side presenting with the same response. How do, we, how do we do a differential of whether it's atypical BBPV in the posterior canal by the Cruz Camoons, or is it the, um, at the short arm? I guess, would it be safe to say that there would be no nystagmus in, in the case of the um, uh, short arm? Uh, if you have a short arm uh, autoconium, which is uh, swimming around <clears throat> in the short arm and falling onto the cupula and uh, the cupular surface, then the cupula may be pressed down by the gravity, but you don't see this. <clears throat> and then you do a dick salt pack and, the, and the, this autoconium falls off of the cupola into the short term, perhaps out into the vestibulum. So there is no nystagmus because the cupola is not deflected backwards from this slightly depressed position. And then when the patient is sitting up, then the debris falls back and hits the cupola again. And this may cause a short retropulsion during sitting up, that the autoconium falls onto the cupola acutely. And this is a very short time frame, so you don't see a permanent nystagmus. This is the short-term canalolithiasis, and if you have a, a short, uh, a posterior cupulolithiasis, you may have two cases. First, you make an adixol pike in posterior cupulolithiasis, but the cupula does not deflect 
in the direction of the utricle, utricle because you don't do the Dick's hole pipe deep enough or the semicircular canal is attached not as inferior as sometimes is the case. And then in another patient, either there's a, the same cupulolithiasis and you do a deep Dick's hole pipe or the semicircular canal attached, is attached more inferiorly, it varies in the anatomy. And then you see the cupola uh, deflecting in the direction of the utricle. So I should say that there are three scenarios. First, lusotoconia in the, in the short uh, arm, uh, like uh, billiard balls, as Michael said, and, and pushing the cupola every time the patient is bending or sitting up. Um, and causing slight and chronic symptoms. And the other two are concerns the cupulotithiasis of the posterior canal with or without dumbbitness nystagmus, depending on the anatomy and on the Dixor pack. And in, in this paper, we checked with Hungarian colleagues and found that uh, one third of the BPP patients had criteria for type 2 BPPV. So all BPV patients with BPV symptoms, 30% had, uh, didn't have nystagmus. And these people were longer uh, at home without seeing a doctor. The patient had less intense complaints that making the diagnosis took two months, which was twice, uh, twice as long as this posterior canalolithiasis with the, with the full-blown acute BPB or ho horizontal. And I think that this was probably because the patients had waited longer before seeing a doctor, but also because through the referral process, uh, because the people didn't see that this is a BPBP. Uh, and the patients were not, uh, so um, um, agitated as to go to the doctor acutely because they, these are very slight, but uh, bothersome symptoms on the long run. Yeah, and you can see why they wouldn't be treated, why it might last longer, right? That the clinician does a Dix-Halpike, doesn't see any nystagmus and thinks, okay, it's not BPV, it's something else. I'll refer you on or it's gonna spontaneously resolve, but it doesn't and it lingers and they continue to seek, seek somebody. And it's also important this was a, that this study was prospective. It, you know, it was as, as folks were coming in the door. So it's 30% of you know, actual real world clinical care of patients. And, and one thing to add um, to Dr. Buki's response, Pooja, in your example, this apogeotropic presentation of the posterior canal, the long arm of the canal, that, um, the, the duration of the stagmus would be different in that example too. So uh, that would be, you're right, it would be an inhibitory nystagmus of the posterior canal. So if it's a right posterior canal that's inhibited, we would get a downbeat and a left torsion. And, and that would be, that would end once the material stopped moving and, and as, it, as it was moving towards the cupula. Unless it was a canal jam, and, but a canal jam is going to present uniquely, and um, and there's ways to try to figure that out. So I think I think that's one of the main differences is you, of course, in type two you have no nystagmus, 
But, it, but as we've shown in the video that I keep bringing up, it's a beautiful video. You need to go check out the video. Um, it's, it's persistent downbeat, but it's nystagmus. It's downbeat and it's, and it's torsion, again, inhibitory, um, which is uh, the persistent is, is different from the apogeotropic variant of the long arm of the canal, which would be short duration. Help you to Thank see. you both. Thank you again. Um, that takes us into the next question about how do we treat these, um, the specific kind of BPPV. In classic BPPV, we're doing the relocation maneuvers. Um, what do we do differently in type two? Well, I think, you know, what, what, what I've learned from Dr. Buki, frankly, and from this paper was that uh, repeat, he, he mentioned this earlier with sit-ups, um, but so Dix-Hallpike actually maneuvers, repeated Dix-Hallpike maneuvers that, that put the posterior canal uh, in, in, a, in a orientation that will enable fluid to move uh, repeatedly led to over half of the subjects had complete resolution, 54%, I think, completely resolved after doing that at home. So that, that would suggest that the mechanism was one of, one of you know, two types. One, either, either the otoconia were physically relocated, which is the goal of repositioning maneuvers. That is, they did repeated sit-ups. And in doing that, the material was restored back to the utricle. That's one possibility. The other possibility in that in that that majority of folks that had complete resolution is that perhaps it dissolved, you like sugar in tea, and there are there's there's evidence in animal studies where they're you know they're 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 ex vivo studies, but where the otoconia did dissolve in solution that has the same composition as uh, endolymph, so so that's that's possible. And that treatment worked. Now that's not been studied. And we mentioned it in the paper as a limitation. You know, this paper was not designed as a treatment paper per se. It was incidence and theory, theoretical explanation for the nystagmus that we see and for this type two BPV, um, the nystagmus after a, a repositioning maneuver in the short arm and the type two BPV, which doesn't have nystagmus, of course. But, but that was the treatment. So that's what we suggest. Um, and what dosing would you give a patient for a home program, or is that something that is not um, discussed or established yet? Well, I think Bella can speak to the dosing. It, we did we did uh, put that in the paper. Um, before that, I'll just say that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, treating, following the guide, so there are no guidelines uh, for type 2 BPV, but the guidelines for the more traditional positional vertigo, still some of those guidelines apply here, which are, um, you know, your patients should be improving with your intervention. So, so you're, you're treating a symptom in this case, uh, you don't have a sign, you don't have nystagmus, but you're treating the symptom. And that's, that's what, you know, at, at least physical therapists treat, we treat an impairment or we treat a symptom, right? So we're treating a symptom. Uh, you're not gonna continue to treat them if they're not getting better, but you're gonna try. And you're gonna rule out what, what are some of the known causes of vertigo that, that, that are more central, or you're gonna refer out to somebody that can do that. 
So you're following kind of those, those clinical smart practices and then some of the clinical practice guidelines. And Bella, you want to talk about the uh, dosing, which is which um which we did talk about in the paper a little bit, at least what we did. Dr. Buki. Well, um, I uh, tell the patient that um, what happens if they have these problems, and you have to be sure as a doctor that there is no central cause. It's, it's very important. So I do not diagnose this uh, entity without having a radiological uh, workup, uh, at least CT with contrast, but um, better MRI. And, uh, but if, if you have patients who, who really do not have any radiological um, diagnosis and you can't explain and the, and the complaints are very typical and the patients have an asymmetric sitting up vertigo which cannot be migraine because in migraine you have the um, uh, into motion intolerance but it should be uh, on both sides so if the the diagnosis is sure then I, and I make uh, them to do the practice in in the outpatient ambulance at least uh, the sitting up at least five or seven times and after that uh, five or seven uh, sit-ups the patients already say that well it's better it's it's less dizzy uh, sitting up and then I ask them in the morning and in the evening to do um, approximately 10 sit-ups uh, for a few days. And um, several patients, very interesting that if you check this, these people are, are coming to you and say, here, doctor, I have a normal MRI. I have the symptoms, nobody knows what I have. And then I do only three or four exercises. And they say, doctor, if you do this once more with me, I shall vomit. And this is not normal. The patients have such a strong vegetative reaction and sweating and, and nausea only a, 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 because of a few sitting up. So in these cases, sometimes I have to admit them into the hospital and help them um, with the practices and, and do incremental practices because the veg vegetative reaction is ve uh, very strong at these um, in this entity. Okay, could you also elaborate a little bit on if the sit-up is the ipsilesional sit-up where you're um, lying on the side of the lesion or it's supine to sit? Um, it's ipsilesional, you're right. This is a good question. And I think that uh, this works because every time when you do a, a physical maneuver and you can elicit the vertigo then you moved the autoconia surely so then you elicited the movement and by moving the autoconia you can dissolve them because the endolymph has a 200 micromolar calcium concentration which is very low and uh, the blood is has two millimolar and uh, the autoconia when they get moved out of confined small spaces then possibly I 
theorize uh, could dissolve. And then would it be safe to say then the treatment focus from a vestibular therapy stand of, of point of view should be habituation or relocation maneuvers or both? Well, I yeah, consider habituation as a neurological, neurological uh, mechanism. I think it's a physical habituation perhaps. And um, what, Michael, what do you say? To yeah, that? I was just gonna say the same thing. I don't think it's a, a desensitization response. That's another, that's another sort of way to express, I think what you're asking Pooja, which is if you repeat a provocative maneuver, the brain generally becomes less irritated by the provocation. And there's, there's neurophysiological evidence behind why that happens, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I think you're, you're, you know, again, it's a, it's a, because of the, because of this large percentage of folks that it completely resolved. I think, it, you know, that the other percentage of those folks, we mentioned 54% that got, you know, instant, you know, complete resolution. The others got better, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite resolved at the, at the recur, at the return visit would suggest that either maybe there's less material, not all of it's dissolved or not all of it's relocated, or maybe there was some desensitization to the repeat maneuver. But I, I think this is a physical problem, as, as Bella said, and I think we're just, we, we physically are, are, are creating an effect. From a, from a rehab standpoint, Pooja, I'm not sure you can tell, right? You know, you're, you're, right. you should have, I think you should approach, you should, you know, look for the ipsy lesional difference in, in symptom of vertigo report and truncal instability, um, and then and then treat it. Uh, uh, but and and you're treating it with a with a physical maneuver, but not really going to know the mechanism behind it. And any specific bullet points you would want um, physical therapists such as myself to be aware of when we see a presentation such as type two BBPV? Well, I, I think I think it's important that you that the clinician does have a video frenzel or or you know analog frenzel lenses to make sure that you are confirming that there is no nystagmus. So that that's critically important. And kind of, I know you know this, Pooja, but it is important that you want to make sure you do the, the clinical exam uh, and the positional uh, exam, all those appropriate uh, fixation removed components. As Bella mentioned, you know, there's signs of central that we need to make sure you don't see. And so you want to make sure that they really don't have nystagmus. So, so to do that, you really need to be able to block fixation. Um, and then, uh, you know, they, they, we would recommend that, that you know, that they, they follow this, this sort of criteria for type two, which is they don't have any nystagmus, but they do have the report of a positional vertigo. So they feel vertigo when they go into a position, not all the time. They won't necessarily have it upright when they're still, this is a positional vertigo. They just don't have the nystagmus. So no nystagmus, positional vertigo, Ipsy lesional positional vertigo, so you can distinguish which side. And then, you know, be on the lookout for truncal instability when they when they 
when you know either going up or you know coming down usually it's when they're sitting up from the dix hall pike position i think those are some good clinical things to use to to help um help you distinguish this I think we're very excited to read the paper when it finally comes out. It's bringing some really exciting thoughts to all the clinicians who've been working with vestibular patients. Uh, any final pearls of wisdom for our listeners? I would just be very happy if other uh, people also saw this and, and commented on this or uh, made studies concerning this because it, it's a very cautious hypothesis and an, a cautious observation from our side. It would be nice to, to be uh, uh, sure about it and we shall have to wait uh, for other scientists and clinicians uh, if they check this, if they see this patient. This would be the most important for me. Michael? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I would just reiterate, um, you know, make, use, use fixation blocks. That's really important. And we, we run into this all the time where there's a lot of vestibular physical therapists that don't have access to that equipment. It's, it's really critical to, to do that. And then the final thought would be to um, take advantage of what we know about canal excitation inhibition and the eye in orbit position. Um, it, you, as a clinician, you should, when, when you are ruling out any type of vertigo due to uh, nystagmus due to vertigo, if the, if this, if the, you can ask your subject to change the eye in orbit, look to the right, look to the left, that will bring out in, in the case of a nystagmus, true nystagmus, a, a, it should follow canal expectations it can help you distinguish peripheral from central, um, and so I, I think that's really important too. Now, again, in type two, we don't have any nystagmus, but you need to verify that by appropriately blocking fixation. We thank you both for this extremely enriching educational podcast. And um, Dr. Buki, have a good night. And Dr. Schubert, have a good day. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you very much. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.